Russian attacks hitting maternity wards. Supply convoys prevented from reaching besieged cities. More casualties. Against this backdrop, Ukrainian and Russian officials are resuming their fourth round of negotiations. To say that these are high-stakes negotiations would be an understatement. So to break down these global stakes, what exactly is on the table at these negotiations, and if countries like China have a role to play, we're joined by Cecile Shea. She's a non-resident senior fellow of global security and diplomacy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to speak with you this morning or this afternoon, Sasha. Catch us up, Cecile. Ukrainian and, and Russian officials, they're meeting right now. So what do we know about these negotiations so far? So these negotiations have been going on, have been ongoing almost since the beginning of the crisis. And of course, the two sides were talking before the crisis. Um, and the Ukrainians, of course, want to present themselves as consistently looking for an out. They want to demonstrate that they are looking for peace. Um, and Zelensky has said that much from the very beginning, you know, that his side is the side that's looking for peace. The Russians seem to be playing a double game, um, frankly. They show up at these peace talks. They advertise that they are speaking at these peace talks. They may come to agreements on, for instance, humanitarian um, evacuations. But they aren't living up to even the small things to which they agree during these talks. And mm-hmm. they certainly are not moving at all toward any kind of ceasefire. Yeah. What is this technical pause that they've stopped for? Yeah. I mean, so there there have been other technical pauses. <laughs> um, and they, you know, this, at least during the most recent one, a few carloads of of folks were able to um, to evacuate from some of the hardest hit cities. Um, but there needs to be more than a technical pause at this point. There needs to be an absolute ceasefire and some guaranteed um, ways for civilians to evacuate the hardest hit towns. And, you know, I've been seeing some private reports from people living in Ukraine overnight. And as your own news um, just pointed out, mm-hmm. the shelling in some of the suburban areas is is ongoing and is really horrific and is indiscriminate. I mean, you know, and that is really an echo of what the Russians did in Syria. Um, they are not focused on military targets. They are killing women. They are killing children. They are, you know, hitting maternity wards. It's yeah. really quite horrific what is happening there. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has repeatedly said that he's open to negotiations with Russia. So is allowing a partition of the country on the table? He has said no. Um, Zelensky has said no. Now, you know, whether Russia could remain de facto in control of Crimea or of parts in the east, you know, I suspect that Zelensky might be willing to leave that open. The problem Russia has now, frankly, is the the Russian zone of Ukraine, the Russian-speaking zone of Ukraine, which is the eastern part that borders Russia, which used to have somewhat favorable views toward Russia is now strongly, you know, pro-Ukrainian, anti-Russia. Remember, Zelensky himself is a Russian speaker. I mean, he spoke Russian at home, not Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, uh, Russia has made this much harder on itself because it's not really clear that even those so-called contested provinces would would really still be on the side of Russia after they are paying such a heavy price. But yes, I suspect Zelensky would be willing to come to some sort of compromise on Crimea and on, on the two contested provinces at this point, but he's certainly not going to de facto turn them over to Russia. I cannot see him doing that at this point. Let's talk about NATO. Uh, Zelensky's petition to join the European Union. He's expressed interest in joining NATO. 
which Putin vehemently opposes, is taking NATO membership for Ukraine off the negotiation table an option? So what I have long suspected is that the months leading up to the outbreak of hostilities or in those months, the U.S. very and NATO generally very quietly offered a, some sort of compromise to Russia. And it was probably something along the line of a moratorium, moratorium on NATO and EU expansion for five years. I don't think that they could have done any more than that. And they cannot. I mean, the NATO Secretary of General has said, you know, we have uh, stated um, – requirements for joining NATO, and we allow any country that meets those requirements to join. And we're not going to uh, close our doors to any country that shares our values and beliefs. And the European Union is in the same situation. They are not going to start picking and choosing countries so long as those countries meet the requirements. And I have to say, you know, Ukraine actually has a long way to go before it would meet the requirements um, for NATO and EU membership. Mm -hmm. uh, both, you know, it, it's it has a lot. Uh, it, before this conflict broke out, it had a long way to go in terms of corruption and in terms of its justice system and in terms of getting its um, economy um, on the right footing. You know, it's going to, in some ways now, the pressure would be on EU and NATO to accept them sooner because of what they have been through. But uh, they were not going to join tomorrow, even if they had filed the membership documents. So they, they have a long way to go. And that's, I have to say, that's one of the great things about NATO and the EU is that it has been a forcing mechanism for a lot of newly independent states and newly democratic countries to force them to move ahead even more quickly on right. establishing the rule of law and establishing modern militaries that, you know, respect human rights and establishing a, a central bank system that will meet, that will work in the modern global economy. And, and that's really a success story of both of those institutions. And, and I have to say it, it it's absolutely positively why they cannot back down at this point and say, well, we're only going to take some countries as new members. Mm -hmm. Several NATO countries are sending forces and arms to other NATO countries in Eastern Europe, which is the very thing Putin didn't want. Exactly. This has totally backfired on him. And I've been trying to watch him in, in some of his televised uh, meetings and things, and his body language is not good. He realizes that he has made a mistake. Um, you know, I, it's clearly some of the people around him who are yes people in the end and who tell him what he wants to hear. And it has backfired this time. They misjudged U.S. resolve. I think they are taken aback by the spirit in the American people, the pro-Ukrainian spirit that you're seeing everywhere around the country right now. And he certainly misjudged European resolve. And, and it points out again how wrongheaded President Trump's views were that, that we don't need NATO anymore. Clearly we do. You know, I mean, clearly we do. Clearly... Uh, Poland and Hungary are at risk at this point. Um, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia are justifiably extremely concerned that they might be next. So NATO is, if anything, more relevant than ever. What did we learn from Russian diplomatic strategy in Syria? Yeah, so that's a interesting question. And of course, Syria was a much more, I don't want to say complicated, but, but probably complex and foggy, unclear, if that makes sense, situation than you have in Ukraine because you had so many extra-governmental groups. I mean, what you have in Ukraine is one government's army against another government's army. Um, in, in Syria, you had um, ISIS, which at the time I think was still called ISIL, on one side, and you had various anti-government factions on the other, some of which 
held some semblance of democratic values and others clearly did not. And then you had the government of, of Assad, which was, you know, picking and choosing whom he would attack. So Russia went in there and Syria has been in one form or another a, a client state of of uh, Russia and before that the Soviet Union for many decades. Uh, Russia went in and on the one hand did do some things that were helpful to the international effort to uh, put ISIS out of business. But on the other hand, caused a lot of indiscriminate um, destruction throughout the country. And I believe Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have said Russia was guilty of uh, war crimes um, and has been guilty of war crimes during the conflict. At least 5,000 civilians killed yeah. by Russian weapons, that sort of thing. So it was a kind of a different situation. But um, you know, they have, I think this gets to your question time and time again, over the last 20 years, Russia has not paid a huge international price for really egregious actions. Whether you're talking about in Syria, whether you're talking about the invasion of Georgia, whether you're talking about assassinating someone using polonium three blocks from the United States embassy in London, which to my mind was kind of the most egregious of all of them because it happened inside the UK in the capital of Great Britain yeah. near the US embassy. And yet there was very, very limited international response. I want to shift gears and, and talk about China's role here while I have yeah. you. So far, China's done a dance to neither condemn nor endorse the invasion. Right. Can you talk about that? So yeah, so um, the leaders of China have only one goal, and they always have only one goal, and that is to stay in power and to maintain stability, to maintain quietness in the street there. And they do that with three ways. One is by maintaining a really strong and growing economy, um, because they know that if economic growth stalls, they're going to have marches in the streets. Um, the second way is by using a really horrifyingly effective um, internal spying apparatus where any, when a Chinese person goes anywhere, pretty much in China, facial recognition software is used to monitor where they're going and with whom they are speaking. And then the third thing that they do is build national cohesion around this idea that China is ascendant and that the U.S. is a declining power. So now they have to balance all of those things. And they're looking at a possible economic calamity in the West and in Russia, which is going to impact uh China's economy and going to impact how much it has to spend on imported oil. And China is extremely dependent on imported oil. Um, and it is looking at um, looking for new ways to keep news of the conflict out of the Chinese street, because it, it, it's very clear that there are many people in China who would want to know why China has not done more to speak out against Russia because China has always said it respects international borders. Therefore, the U.S. shouldn't be lecturing it on how to do its own business mm -hmm. inside its borders. And now you have another country, a supposedly friendly country that has violated a country's borders. So it's in a tough position that way. Um, as far as what it's going to do, I think it's going to do as little as possible. That mm -hmm. is my prediction at this point. I don't think anybody really knows. I certainly don't think that the U.S. government knows. We're, the U.S. government is worried. Um, they're asking China, for instance, not to send spare parts, spare military parts uh, to mm -hmm. Russia, which Russia desperately needs right now. So the U.S. Um, wouldn't be okay with any sort of deal no. brokered by China? No. Well, a deal. So, you know, what kind of, so if China were to, you know, 
I'm not even sure how that would work. So if China were to go to Moscow and say, listen, Vlad, we will bail you out, but you need to withdraw immediately and promise no more hostilities for five years. Would Ukraine take that? You know, so in theory, they could do that. But I don't see I don't see Putin um, agreeing to that unless he gets much, much more desperate. Um, And and whether the Chinese would go that far, you know, that, that's not something they historically have done. They historically haven't been the big negotiators. Um, it could be helpful if, if Russia gets desperate enough, but I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced, A, that, that China would want to be in that boat. They might just prefer to secretly give China a little bit of money and a little bit of help to keep it in the fight. Um, but it would it would certainly be a it would be you yeah. know if it, it would be great for China if it were to do that. I'm just not sure that it has the sophisticated di- diplomatic apparatus at this point to accomplish it. What do you have your eye on moving forward? I mean, one question is how long can Kiev hold out? Um, and it, things are not looking too great there. Um, another question is whether the White House will continue to be able to hold back the leaders of some of the newer NATO members from providing actual and real assistance to the Ukraine. I should say, I'm sure we're providing enormous assistance to the Ukraine. Uh, a lot of it is through our intelligence services. Others of it is, you know, through other kind of non-publicized avenues. But at some point, um, and we're seeing now with the leaders of some of those new NATO members visiting um, Ukraine today, at some point they are not going to be willing to sit down and not send some planes across the border and do some things like that. They clearly are feeling increasingly threatened by what is going on. So I am watching that to what degree NATO is willing to provide a little more assistance to the Ukrainians. Um, and and then the other thing we have to watch is weather. You know, uh, we're going into a, what I understand is quite a wet season in much of Ukraine. It makes it very difficult for mm for um, mechanized forces, for instance, for tanks and for um, armored vehicles to move. And that's going to hurt the Russians and that's going to help the Ukrainians. I just have to say one more thing about the humanitarian crisis there. You know, we keep hearing about the two million um, folks who have left Ukraine and are now in some of the bordering countries. What we aren't hearing about are the internally displaced. And I, I heard some things about this last night. There are millions more folks who have left the eastern region of Ukraine and have moved into the central and western part. And and they need assistance also. They're in increasingly desperate straits. Yeah, good point. That's Cecile Shea. She's a non-resident senior fellow of global security and diplomacy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Thanks, Cecile. Thank you, Sasha. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.